Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Martin Brooks with us. Now, Martin is the executive director of the Tri-State Consortium, an alliance of 47 school districts in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Their website is tristateconsortium.org. Previously, he was superintendent in the Plainview Old Bethpage Central School District, the Valley Stream Central High School District, and Valley Stream Union Free School District 13. He also was interim superintendent in the Kings Park School District for a year. He worked for 16 years in the Shoreham Wading River Central School District in various administrative positions, including principal, assistant superintendent for a curriculum, and deputy superintendent. He began his educational career in the community school district number eight in the South Bronx as a teacher and guidance counselor. Dr. Brooks earned his doctoral degree in educational administration at Teachers College, Columbia University. He has served on the boards of Long Island Children's Museum, Public Schools for Tomorrow, the Metropolitan School Study Council, the Institute for Development of Education in the Advanced Sciences at Hofstra University, and the Long Island School Leadership Center. He also is a member of the Suburban School Superintendents and the National Superintendents Roundtable. Dr. Brooks served as the president of the Nassau County's Council of Superintendents in 2000 and 2001. Marty has written extensively about education and leadership and is co-author with his wife, Jacqueline Grennan Brooks, as one of ASCD's best-selling books. In Search of Understanding, The Case for Constructivist Classrooms. He has also presented at numerous local, state, national, and international conferences. So welcome, Dr. Marty Brooks. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Great. We're in your home. This is beautiful. I've not been in a situation like this where I'm going to be <laughs> completely distracted. So my back is to the landscape. So we're so happy to have you on our podcast. As you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Let's do it. Awesome. So can you share with us a bit about your leadership journey and what you're doing now? So now I'm the director of the Tri-State Consortium, which is an alliance of 47 school districts in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. I'm in my ninth year of doing that work. And to a large extent, it's based on external peer feedback. So we set up visits to each other once every three years. A district will host a visit. And the visit is around an issue that a system might consider to be important. For example, can you give us feedback about our mathematics program, K-12? Can you give us feedback about our science program, K-12? In 2010, one of our districts asked us to begin looking at critical and creative thinking 
And so we were asked to come in and uh, give feedback about the extent to which critical and creative thinking and non-standard complex problem solving are embedded in that district's curriculum across all subject areas and across all content and grades. Mm -hmm. And so we write a report and we give that information to the system and then the system uses that report to figure out what its next level of work might be. In addition, uh, the consortium has study groups for uh, superintendents, assistant superintendents, principals at each level, special ed directors, and APs. And then we have two conferences a year, fall conference and a spring conference, where we invite people who are pretty well known in the field to come and talk with us about what's on their mind. So in the last year, we've had Heidi Hayes Jacobs and Giselle martin Kniep and Richard Elmore and uh, Young Zhao and a bunch of well-known thinkers and authors who have come to talk with us about the stuff that's on their mind. Prior to this, I began my career sort of by accident. I didn't intend to get into this field. I was going to be a writer, but I needed to earn some money before I went off to grad school. <laughs> That's and how most of us start. It is. Education, it right? is. And the city back in those days were hiring anyone who could make mist on a mirror. And I could do that. So they hired me as an above quota per diem sub. And I worked for a year at a school in the South Bronx in that role. And then I had my own class. I taught sixth grade for two years. And that was all that I taught. I only taught for three years. And I never was very good at it. I loved my kids. They seemed to like me. But I never really learned how to teach. I hadn't student taught. I didn't know much about curriculum. I didn't know much about instructional practice. And after my third year of doing this, a guidance position opened up in the school that I was in in the South Bronx. And the principal asked me if I wanted to do that, and I did. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I took two years off to go for my doctorate. I took all my coursework full time. And then when I wanted to go back to my school, my guidance position had been eliminated by that time. So I started applying for jobs as an administrator, because that's what my doctorate was in. And I applied for every job that was advertised in the New York Times between March and September of 1976. 274 jobs. I uh, was interviewed four times out of those 274 yeah. applications, and I got none of those jobs. Mm -hmm. So I was 0 for 274. <laughs> And then I had been, I was sitting in my advisor's office and he received a phone call from the superintendent in Shoreham Wading River asking if he knew of somebody who could begin a personnel department in Shoreham because the Shoreham students had been sent to Port Jefferson mm -hmm. for middle school and high school. Then when Shoreham and Wading River combined, they built a middle school and built a high school and were bringing a grade back each year. And I just happened to be sitting in my advisor's office when the superintendent called. And my advisor said, I may have somebody who could do this work for you. I had never been out to Long Island as far as Shoreham. And so I drove far. out pretty far. I was an hour and a half late for my interview because I figured how much past Great Neck could it be? <laughs> and so anyway, I wound up going out there and I got hired. And even though you were an hour and a half late. Even though I was an hour and a half late. I think that was because I might have been the only candidate for the job. 
So I spent two years doing that work, and then an elementary principalship opened up in Shoreham. I applied for that, and I got that, and I was an elementary principal for six years, and then I was the assistant superintendent for a bunch of years, and then I left Shoreham in 1992, and I became superintendent in Valley Stream 13, Mm -hmm. where I was for uh, six years, and then the superintendent of the high school district left and another superintendent in Valley Stream and I ran the high school district as a tandem for a year in the 97-98 school year. And then the board of the high school district offered me that job full time and I became superintendent of the the 7 through 12 district. And then in 2000, I left that and went to Plainview, Old Beth Page, And I was superintendent there for seven years. I retired at the end of the uh, 06-07 school year. And I did a one-year interim superintendency in Kings Park in 07-08. And then I have been doing this tri-state consortium work ever since. So you've had a lot of experience in ed leadership. How would you describe your leadership style? I would describe myself as visionary, not because I have a great vision, but because I have a vision. And I think it's important for every leader to have a vision uh, because that vision is the North Star. It's what keeps you anchored, keeps you centered on what's really important to do. I describe myself as collaborative, transparent. I think that when you are working as a leader, people decide to trust and support you based on their read of how honest you are, how open you are with them, how truthful uh, you're being in discussing various issues with them. And one problem a lot of leaders run into is trying to get people to do things either by not being fully truthful with them or by trying to manipulate them. And people sense when that's occurring and feel uncomfortable about it, even though they may not be able to express why. And that makes it harder for the system to function well and for people to support the direction that you're heading in. So I always try to be open and honest. You mentioned transparency. There are some leaders that would instead manipulate. What's some advice that you can give people who have a hard time trusting and being transparent as leaders? The second you lie to anybody, to your board of ed, to your leadership team, to your faculty, to your parent group, to anybody, it's over. Because people understand that they can never trust you again. Although people find it tempting because It feels like it's a shorter trip Mm -hmm. to get people to do something if you can manipulate them into doing it. It's the process of working through everything with everybody, with all of the arguments and the debates and the resistance and all of that. That's all critically important because when you're through with that process, if you haven't done all of that, it feels incomplete and not everybody feels as if their voice had been heard. So how can we, as leaders, navigate that best? Should we have a coach? Should we have a mentor? Is that something that should be in our sights? I think all of us have mentors, but they're not appointed 
for us. They're people with whom we've worked in our careers, whose work we have admired, whose style we have admired. And they don't even know sometimes that there are mentors because we've admired them from afar. But I think that the advice I would give is understand what you can and can't control. Mm -hmm. What you can't control is how others respond to you. What you can control is yourself. And so locate your center and stay true to that. Because if you're true to that, even though people may disagree with what your vision is and what your ideas for moving a school or a system ahead might be, they can never disagree with your honesty and your integrity and your intent. And those are the most important things. It's one thing to disagree about ideas. It's another thing to feel this is somebody I can't trust. Right, right. Okay, thank you. So which quote or quotes about leadership speak mm. to you and why? One quote, it's not about leadership, but one quote that I've always loved is by Jean Piaget. This is a paraphrase, not an exact quote, but it's children always answer correctly the questions they ask themselves. And so we ask kids questions in school and we get their answers to the questions and we tell them they're right or wrong. In fact, many times they don't hear the same question that we think we're asking them. And so they wind up answering a different question and they're answering it correctly from their point of view but we're telling them that they're wrong and that's harmful and hurtful and it causes kids to withdraw and worry about raising their hands and being embarrassed, etc. And so it's always important to try to get at what is the student really hearing and what is the child trying to communicate to us when he or she is talking to us either unsolicitedly or in response to a question that we ask. How can that translate into leadership? Because I imagine we've encountered situations where we ask a question and someone perceives it in a different way. Speak a little bit to that. So it's talking to faculty about the importance of being kind. Mm -hmm. Kindness is critically important. Kids pick up on that in a heartbeat. And they understand when the adult in their room is kind and is safe to be with and you can take risks with him or her or has a set of rules and boundaries that really can't be crossed. And if you raise your hand without knowing the exact answer the person is looking for, you place yourself at some risk. So I always talk to staff about the importance of that. And I also think it's important for people to understand child developmental principles. We go through our graduate work learning a lot about content and learning a lot about practice. We don't always learn so much about developmental stages and the principles of how human beings, as they develop, come to learn. Understanding that really helps to deal with responses that kids give us at different points in their development in a broader sense. And then I was going to say the quote about leadership that I've always liked, I think it was by Linsky and Heifetz in their classic book, the name of which is escaping me now, of course, but good leaders go beyond their authority. So every job 
I've moved into, I have felt initially unprepared for. So I move into a principalship. I don't know anything about how to do that job. So there are two ways to come at that. One is to try to figure out what the job is, capital T, capital J, and figure out how I'm going to do the job. The second way is Marty Brooks as principal. Marty Brooks as assistant superintendent. Marty Brooks as superintendent. And taking the things that are important to me, matter to me, and carving the job out around those kinds of things. You mean your core values, your character? Right, because when I was in Plainview Old Bethpage for seven years, I was in Valley Stream for eight, the people who came before me in both of those settings and the people who came after me did the superintendency in a different way. And when you move into the job, the temptation is to figure out, well, what did the person before me do? Because that's the job. But in fact, that's not the job. The board is hiring you because of you. And so the idea is to figure out, how am I going to make this job work for me? And what can I do to benefit the system in ways that the system perhaps hadn't been dealt with in the past? Not because of any deficiencies that my predecessor had, but because of a different set of interests that he or she had. And so the idea here is to try to push the boundaries of your authority to the point where the envelope is really starting to stretch out a little bit because you're doing the stuff that you think is really important to do. Yeah. In fact, I just interviewed someone that said the best advice she received was that you're the best at being you. And that speaks to what you're just saying. Really getting to know who you are and being comfortable with that is important. That speaks to the social emotional competencies that's so important in leadership. I think a mistake that some superintendents make is upon getting hired, trying to please the board. And you can't please the board in any way other than doing your work well. And so the idea here is to figure out how do I do my job as well as I can do it? What did they hire me to do? What are the big challenges that need to get done? And doing that ultimately causes the board to be happy because the community, the staff are all wired into the board and they'll be talking to the board about the good work that they see going on as opposed to trying to find out the little things that different people on the board might like to have occur. You can't run a system by trying to please five or seven or nine different people who serve on a corporate body. I can see how new leaders in positions like that can have that temptation to do that. Thank you so much for that. So, Marty, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Mm, Thoughtful, reflective, respectful. I've been blessed that I've had some terrific role models in my career and people who I selected as mentors who probably didn't even know that I had done that, but who had those characteristics and who led largely around ideas and questions. Mm. So what they would do is ask a provocative question, give some reading that's attached to that question that served as sort of an anchor for the discussion and then opened up issues around the information and questions that he or she posed. And I think what that does is it honors the intelligence of everyone with whom you work, because it's not you coming in and saying, this is what we're going to do, this is how things are going to be, but it's, what do you think of this idea? Take a look at this, read this, and then let's talk about this. And when you do that, you have to be prepared for the answer to be no, as well as yes. You're going into it 
hoping the answer is yes, but you have to understand the answer may well be no. And there's a collective wisdom that you have to respect among the people you're working with so that if you truly are interested in getting their views and the collective wisdom is no, even though you may want the answer to be yes, that's the answer. The answer is no. You know, you said something, someone who honors the intelligence of those around them. When I think of the leader that you just described, someone who asks provocative questions then listens intensely to the answers that you have. To me, that's someone who values those around them. Right. And those are the types of leaders that I am inspired by. I'm inspired to work for. I'm inspired to go the extra mile for. And that's the type of leader that I want to be. I agree. And a humbling experience for me is going in to watch somebody teach which I, in my jobs, have done many, many, many times. And it's humbling for me because when I taught, I wasn't very good. And when I go into the classroom of somebody who's good, and most of the people I've been fortunate to work with are really, really good, I am inspired by watching what they do and watching how kids respond. So to think that I would not honor their thinking about what makes the most sense in a school is really to harm myself and the system that I was hired to lead. So the idea is there are so many strong, wonderful educators that make up a system. Take advantage of that. Seek their views, get them engaged. Most people want to move beyond the four walls of their classroom. Most people want to be engaged. Most people want to be asked questions. Do those things and you'll learn a lot. You know, I want to thank you for your authenticity and your vulnerability. I mean, I have not come across that leaders who would say, I wasn't very good at teaching. <laughs> it takes a lot of confidence in who you are, but also knowing what you don't know and how other people can kind of complement that and how you can still lead them in great ways, even if that wasn't your strength. So I appreciate that. Thanks. So, Marty, can you tell us what's the best advice you ever received? I think the best advice I ever got was hire good people and let them do their work. The superintendent who hired me in Shoreham, Dick Doremus, that was his motto. He would hire really good people and he would stay out of their way and let them do their work. He asked to be kept informed, but he never wanted to micromanage, never wanted to tell people how to do their jobs let them figure it out on their own. And that's what I've tried to do as well. It made a lot of sense to me. It still does. It's very wise advice. Yeah. So I'm imagining in your years of leadership, you've created and sustained a lot of good teams. What does it mean to have a good team and how would you build or sustain one? I have been blessed to work with great teams. I've been blessed to work with great boards of ed as well. All 16 years that I was a superintendent, I had really strong boards. I think that one thing that's important is to hire people who are at least as competent as you are so that they're at a point in their careers where maybe you were two, three years beforehand and these are really smart, engaged, dedicated people who are looking to do really good and important work. When I hire, 
I rarely hire qualifications or experience. I hire people instead. Like character? Yeah. I'm looking for people who want to be part of a mission, want to commit to something, want to believe in something bigger than themselves. And those are the people who are going to work long and hard, who are going to make the sacrifices necessary to get the work done, you know, in the way that you want it to get done, and who also understand what it means to be part of a team. I also hire people with short toes. Um, because if you have people on your team who feel that somebody else is always stepping on their toes and, you know, kind of getting into their area, it creates boundaries that don't need to exist. So although there's one person who's in charge of curriculum and one person who's in charge of HR and one person who's in charge of business, and then the superintendent sort of oversees all of that. We're really a four-person team who get into each other's areas in support of each other all the time. And so if you have people who are proprietary or who are very protective of their areas, that generally leads to more dysfunction as a team than collaboration as a team. So you hire people with short toes. What are some questions that you may ask to flesh that out? Interviews Mm -hmm. generally are the least reliable way to understand what people have done in the past and how they're likely to be in the job. The most reliable way is what they've done in the past. And so I generally ask questions that ask them to talk about things that they did in their current job or their past job that might be helpful for me to understand what they will do once they're in this job. So can you talk to me, for example, about something you really wanted to do that you brought to the superintendent and he or she said, no, you can't do it. And how did you respond to that? Can you describe to me something that was highly successful and why it was a success? And if you get a lot of I, 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 me, 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 that helps me to understand that he or she functions largely as a separate entity. When I hear a lot of we did this and we tried that and this didn't work, but then we tried this, that helps me to understand that he or she viewed him or herself as part of a team tried some stuff, it didn't work, that was okay. We moved on to the next try, that didn't work, that was okay, but then we finally hit upon something on the third try. Looking for someone with short toes. (laughs) That's great. So can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Well, the biggest challenge in my life is stuttering. When I was very young, I had a terrible stutter. I could hardly speak. And when I was a student in school, I wouldn't make eye contact with the adults who were in the classroom because if I did, they would call on me. And it was embarrassing. So I always kept my head down. I never raised my hand. People didn't think I was very smart because I never said anything. And it helped me in a few ways. One is when you can't speak, you learn to communicate in another way. So I did a lot of writing and I became a competent writer. And it also helped me to understand as I moved into my career that every student carries with him or her something. They have some baggage that worries them, that they feel separates them in a negative way from their age peers. And the idea is to help students talk about that a little bit and then help them to understand its context, which has helped me in 
working with kids and working with faculty and you know, working with all the various groups that I've worked with. And so that probably has been the most significant challenge in my life. So did you have people speaking into your life? Because I imagine that's a challenge. It can really do a number on your self-esteem. So were there people speaking into your life? Not at that time. My dad was a career army guy and we lived on an army base in Virginia for a while and then we went to Germany for three years and we lived on four different army bases there. I went to DOD schools and there was never a speech therapist there and so I never got speech help. When I was an undergrad student at NYU in my senior year, still trying to figure out what I was going to do, my speaking still was not great. There was an ed professor from the downtown campus. I was attending the campus in the Bronx, uptown, who came up once a week to teach an ed course. And I had never taken an ed course. And I decided, well, I'll take an ed course just to see what it's like. But I know that when the door opens, this little gray-haired lady's going to walk in and is going to bore us to death. So I signed up for this course. And on the first day, the door opens and this little gray-haired lady walks in. And I just said to myself here it goes and she was stunning mm-hmm. she was powerful and inspirational and for some reason still unknown to me took an interest in me and told me that she felt that if I wanted to teach and I really didn't at that point I might be able to be a success at that and I said to her, I can hardly speak. I mean, I was better, but still stuttering a great deal. And I said, I don't know that I can do this. And she said, you can do this. I know you well enough to know that you can do this. So when I graduated college, I had two job offers in the field I wanted to go in. One was at CBS Radio, uh, taking teletype off the machine and typing it into text to be read over the air. And the second was for a trade magazine company, attending trade conference once each month and then writing articles for a trade magazine. But I also was offered a job as a sub in the South Bronx. And the job as a sub would have forced me and did, because that's the job that I took, to stand up in front of a group of kids every day and speak. And if you can't speak, those kids will tear you to shreds. They will. So that's the job I decided to take because I just... put yourself in the fire. I needed to do that at that point in my life because if I had taken the safe way out, I'm not sure I ever would have allowed myself to take that risk at a later point. So I did that and it was a challenging year. When you're a sub, it's never an easy time. And the school that I was in in the South Bronx had 2,200 kids, grades K through 6, and the classes were arranged by exponents. So class 5-1 were the kids who were considered to be the better students on the grade, and class 5-22 were the kids who nobody else wanted to deal with. So guess whose classes I covered every day? I was in class 5-22, 6-23, because those were the members of the staff who were using up their sick bank. Right, right. And so that's what my first year was like, and I was not good at that. I made every mistake a sub can make. I yelled, I threatened, I did everything that you are told not to do. My second or third day, 
I yelled at a kid that I was going to call his father after school. And he looked at me and said, I don't have a phone and I don't have a father. And so, you know, of course I should have known those things. But I didn't because I hadn't taken ed credits other than that one course that I took. But you start to figure it out and you start to learn that kids don't respond to authority. Kids respond to people who really seek to connect with them. And that's what I started to do. I started to want to connect with kids and I did. And that's what an effective leader does as well. With staff and with kids and with everybody, every constituent group. Marty, you're a great communicator. You've done a lot of work. Well, I still stutter. You're always uh, a recovering stutterer, but when you are in the jobs that I've been in, you're forced to speak all the time. And when you do that, you just get better. And so over time, I've gotten to the point where I'm fine. You know, as I listen to your story, what really inspires me is how you worked on the things that were such a challenge to you because it's not only going to better you but it's going to better those around you realizing that we have a responsibility as a leader to those around us and so part of that is working on us self-leadership right I, I wish I could say that I worked on my stuttering because I felt it would benefit others but the truth is I worked on it because it was about me Right, but no there's question. a great outcome. Yes. I think this is really connected, but can you tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped you and the lives of those around you? I haven't had any successes that I can attribute directly to me. There have been lots of successes that I can attribute to the teams that I've been part of over time, the systems that I've been part of. There's a lot of research about the achievement gap and billions of dollars spent on trying to close that gap. But we know from the research that to a large extent, that horse is out of the barn by the time kids appear at the schoolhouse door. So there's prenatal and postnatal healthcare, there's nutrition, there's housing, there's access to preschool, I can go on and on. Those things are settled by the time kids are five years old and they come to us for the first time. And so the achievement gap has to do with test scores. It has to do with trying to get kids who had disadvantages early in their life to score as high on tests as kids who didn't. And to me, that's a misdirection for our energies in school. And what we should be focusing on instead is the opportunity gap, because those are the things that in schools we have control over. So giving all kids, once they're in our schools, equal opportunity to the richest and most rigorous curriculum the system has to offer, because that is what will determine whether they go on to post-secondary school, the kind of post-secondary school they go on to, the kind of career that they have, and ultimately the amount of money that kids will earn in their lifetimes. So if we focus on that and give kids equal opportunity, equal access to the most rigorous curriculum, we level the playing field that focusing on the achievement gap never has been able to level for kids. So when I became superintendent in Valley Stream High School District, the three high schools, Central, North, and South, all had prerequisites and gates for kids to get into honors and AP. And if you took a look at the schools, you saw disproportionality 
you saw lots of African-American and Hispanic students in lower level classes, a majority of white students in the honors in AP. And the reason is because the preponderance of African-American and Hispanic students couldn't get through the gates. So I started talking to the faculties about student self-selection into honors in AP. Let students challenge themselves. Let students take down the gates. Let kids go right into honors in AP if they wish to challenge themselves. Did the same thing in Plainview Old Bethpage as well. How was that received? Mixed. A segment of the faculty thought it made sense. I think it's fair to say a majority of the faculty had concerns about it. The concerns had to do with watering down the curriculum, moving at a slower pace, having to provide extra help for kids in an AP class where kids shouldn't need extra help. All issues that on the surface make sense. But when you allow those issues to prevent the system from providing equity for students, it generally hurts a subgroup of your kids. And in trying to do right by those kids because you're wanting to place them where you think they belong, you actually create a permanent underclass of kids that never has the opportunity to have the same level of success in life that the other kids have. So as a leader, that's a place you have to dig your heels in and say, I get your argument. That was the vision you had too. Yeah, I get your argument. I understand your concerns. Mm -hmm. To the extent that we can, we'll try to provide support for those kids, but we need those kids to have access to those higher level classes. And so the outcome of that was? So we did studies to determine whether the kids who self-selected in did well, and they did. Mm. The overwhelming majority of kids worked hard, did well, wound up taking two, three AP classes um, when in the past they wouldn't have been eligible to take any, and did just fine. So it did take a team, but it took your vision to push that team forward. So I want to applaud you for that. So what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their climate or culture? Discouraged about what, though? Let's say it's a culture of distrust. Okay. Well, the first thing I would say is morale is not easy to capture. So when I did my doctorate, I studied a school in the South Bronx, and um, I gave a questionnaire to the faculty. And two of the questions were, true, false, my morale is high. True, false, the morale of the staff is high. To the question, true, false, the morale of the staff is high, 70% said false. To the question, true, false, my morale is high, 71% said true. So what does that say? That says, there's actually some research on this. There's a phenomenon. It's It's got various names. I call it the faculty lunchroom phenomenon, where somebody in the faculty lunchroom is angry or upset about something that's going on. There are nine or 10 members of the faculty sitting in there, and this person's complaining about whatever he or she is angry about. And everybody else, if you're flying the wall watching what's going on, is nodding his or her head up and down agreeing. But in fact, most of them are really happy in their school, really happy in their job. So I always caution people not to get too concerned about what people say regarding morale because it's easy to think that collectively morale is low, but you have to dig into each 
person's thinking about his or her job. Second thing I would say to this new leader is that when you're a leader, everybody watches everything you do and everybody listens to everything you say to get a sense of who you really are, to get a sense of whether your actions and your words are synchronized, to get a sense of whether you say one thing to one group but another thing to another group to get a sense of whether when the wind starts to blow really strongly, uh, you either bend or you break. Be true to yourself because nothing will serve you better in the long haul than that. Once again, people may disagree with what you are asking them to do, but if you do it in an open, honest, and sincere way, they can't disagree with the manner in which you're coming at this. And that's, I think, so very important. I also would say that a lot of times people in mid-level leadership positions, this happened to me as well, when I was a principal, are asked to do things by people in the district office that they don't want to do or they don't believe in doing or they don't think is in the best interest of the kids. And so try to separate the what from the how. If the what isn't harmful to kids and the system is asking you to do it, figure out the how. Figure out the way in which you can do it that enables you to put your head on your pillow at night feeling good about yourself. That enables you to stand up in front of your faculty and talk with animation about why we're going to do this and how we're going to do it. But if the what isn't consistent with what you consider to be in the best interests of kids, my suggestion would be don't cave. Don't conform. Don't comply. Stand up for what you believe in because there's a group of people in your school or in your department or whatever group you're charged with leading that's watching how you're dealing with this. And if you come back and ask them to do something that they know you don't believe in, you've lost them because they know that you're a messenger for somebody else rather than a leader. And that's a really tough choice to make, but that's the right choice, and I appreciate that. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? Well, I think we're all works in progress. I mean, I certainly am. I think we are until we draw our last breath. In my role now, I've learned a lot about schools through the role I'm in now that I didn't know when I was a superintendent because I'm in 47 different school districts and I was opposed to only one. One thing that I have learned is that lots of the districts in the consortium are considered high-performing. And there's a difference between a high-performing school district and a school district that serves high-performing kids. Kids may be at a very high level. The system could be at a lower place. And so the idea is to take a look at the system itself, not judge the success of a system by how well its kids do on tests. The obverse of that is true. There are lots of districts and schools that are considered low-performing because its students don't score well on tests. Yet those schools add significant value to the lives of their kids day in and day out and actually educate their kids extremely well. So if you gauge success by how well kids do on tests, you miss the whole. You're looking at one small part, you're missing the whole view. So that's one thing that I've learned. I would also say that all of this insanity that's been going on around how we assess student learning 
and then how we apply student test scores to assess teacher competence and school quality. Gross misuse of data. Even the people who make the tests say that the tests are designed only to assess what kids know and can do. And by the way, the tests aren't even very good at that. But let's assume for a second that they are. The tests were never made to assess teacher competence and never made to assess school quality. So at a national level and at a state level, we're taking data from very questionable tests and misapplying data to areas that those tests were never intended to assess. And it's caused quite a lot of stress. Huge. And rightly so. And I think that... And we've lost really good people because of it. But, you know, on the plus side, I think that it has awakened the sleeping giant, parents. A few years back, when the state decided that student scores were too high and we're going to put a more rigorous test in place and scores across New York State dropped by 30 points and kids who used to be at level three and four were now at level two and parents were getting notes home saying your child needs AIS. That caused many parents to open their eyes and say, what are we doing? with our kids and what are these tests really showing us that we haven't known just through watching kids work day in and day out in school and then when the state started applying student test scores to teacher evaluations parents started saying even more we're subjecting our kids to these tests for a political purpose not for an educational one and therefore we're not going to have our kids participate and so lots of parents across New York have started opting their kids out. And rightly so. So, Marty, can you tell us what you've read that our listeners should read and why? There are so many books on leadership. The one that always resonated the most with me is Leadership on the Line by uh, Heifetz and Linsky because it talks about multiple forms of leadership. But for me, I guess the thing that really struck home was the need to be both on the dance floor and on the balcony watching what's happening on the dance floor simultaneously. And there are some people who place themselves on the balcony and never get that ground level view. There are some people who place themselves on the dance floor and never get that overarching view. But there are some leaders who can do both. And to me, that's really key because you need to be seen as being in the fray by the staff because if you're not in the fray. You don't really understand fully what the issues are, but you also need to have a broad view at the same time. So that book has always been important to me. Leadership on the line. Mm -hmm. Great. Marty, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities that you have? Mm. Well, most of the districts in the consortium are in Westchester, Fairfield County, Rockland County, New Jersey, etc. So I spend a lot of time in the car and I spend a huge amount of time thinking, listen to music, but I'm constantly reflecting on the work that I'm doing and I run as well. So I try to run every day and I don't put on headphones or listen to anything. I just go out without anything on my head or in my head other than the ideas that I want to spend some time thinking about. And those two things give me the time I need to reflect. I would be lying if I said I enjoyed the commuting. I don't. It's a drag and I'm leaving at the, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. But 
it does provide me with an opportunity to think a lot. To think and listen to podcasts. And listen to podcasts, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, you know this very well. Many ed leaders um, put in long hours. How do you maintain balance? I know you spoke a little bit about that with the book Leadership on the Line, you know, being on the dance floor and in the balcony, and that creates a balance, right, in the workplace. But as far as balance, because I know I love to work, and sometimes this is difficult for me. You do have to be really intentional about other things. Yes. I think you have to understand what your personal priorities are. When I got hired as superintendent for the first time, our kids were five and six years old. And I said to the Valley Stream board, and I repeated this when I got hired in eight years thereafter, when I got hired in Plainview, my kids are at an age where they're participating in sports, concerts, playing musical instruments, singing the chorus. And I can't justify going to watch other people's kids doing the same thing while my own kids are doing that and I'm not there. So if you're looking for somebody who's going to be at every play, every concert, every football game, every basketball game, that's not me. I need to be honest with you up front and tell you that I'm going to be leaving work at 3.30 when my kids have games. I'm going to be leaving at 4 o'clock to get to concerts uh, for my own kids. And I was true to that throughout all 16 years that I was a soup. And I had boards that were absolutely supportive of that because they understood that somebody who ties him or herself to his or her desk all day and night is not going to be the kind of leader that they want that leader to be. So earlier I said I was really blessed to have great boards and I really was. They would understand that. Now, every once in a while, there would be a big event that I would miss because my kids were involved in something and I needed to remind the boards at that point because they would get a little concerned about why I was missing a certain event. I think that's really key to have that clear communication and I think that being able to communicate those boundaries are extremely important, so thank you. Right, I mean, there are people who define themselves as a superintendent and there are others who define themselves as a human being who happens to be a superintendent. Mm -hmm. And I am definitely in that second group. Thank you. That's great insight. So Marty, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? When I left the principalship to become an assistant superintendent, then left the assistant superintendency to become a superintendent, then left Valley Stream 13 to go to the high school district, then left the high school district to go to Plainview, then retired from Plainview, each of those shifts, I wondered about what, if any, my legacy in each of those jobs would be. And I used to think that a leader's legacy is in the structures, programs, curricula that he or she brings in. And what I learned is that once you're gone, somebody new comes in with his or her own ideas, and those ideas might be great, might not be great, but it doesn't matter because he or she is going to act on those ideas. And the structures and programs and curricula change. The real legacy that we leave is in the people. Their hopefulness, their optimism, their commitment to the system, the things that you as a leader did to connect with them that helped them to understand that their views matter, that they're important, that the system doesn't work well without them functioning at their fullest capacity at all times. And once you leave, that's what matters most. And having people come up to you at 
parties you know that you go back to or at events you attend or running into them at the market and saying I still remember when you said X or Y or Z and that's always stuck with me or I always appreciated the opportunity you gave me to be part of this committee stuff like that is really what matters the most because in our field generally leaders come and go within relatively short periods of time the faculty tends to stay and if you can get faculty to operate at a level that reflects the respect that they deserve they're going to do wonderful work irrespective of who the superintendent or building leader is legacy is really investing in people right yes so you've invested in us thank you for that. And that's part of the work that we want to do, add value to our guests and to have a platform where they can invest in others and leave a legacy. So that's awesome. One last question. Yep. Is there anything that we haven't addressed that you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I think you've hit upon just about all the points. We're good? Yeah. So Marty, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. My pleasure. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to masterleadership.org to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of the exceptional leaders that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye.